Now, if, uh, for those of you that have been following along closely, we've been in the Gospel of John for months and months, and we came to a bit of a stopping point. We got through the end of chapter 17 where Jesus has not only finished the farewell discourse, but has prayed what is called the high priestly prayer as he prayed for his glory to be revealed to the Father, to all mankind, as he prayed for the eleven disciples who would lose him as he died on the cross and would be prepared for their apostolic ministry, and as he prayed for all who would believe through their word. And so I wanted to change gears just a little bit. Last week in our Advent reading, we read from the Gospel of Luke, and there were several phrases and words and things in there that really captured my attention. And as I went back and reread that, I decided that I wanted to spend a couple of weeks through the remainder of December and deal with Luke chapter 1 and uh, maybe a little bit of Luke chapter 2. We'll see how this goes today. Uh, or Luke chapter 2, I'm not sure how far we'll get through that. So this morning we're looking at the announcement. The announcement is the arrival of Gabriel to the house of Mary to give to her news that no one could possibly have ever anticipated having been told to them in their entire life. Now in Luke chapter 1 in the earlier verses, we learned that the angel Gabriel has appeared to one of Mary's relatives, a woman by the name of Elizabeth, who was married to Zacharias. She was elderly and was barren and was without child. Gabriel appears and tells her that she in her old age, although she's been barren all her life, is going to give birth to a son, and that son is going to be none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be called the forerunner. He was one who, by Gabriel's account, would come in the power of Elijah. He would turn the hearts of Israel back to God and make people ready to receive the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist would fulfill a very unique role in Israel's history. He was the first prophet to prophesy in over 400 years. And so John was a unique individual. He had a unique message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He had a large following, and he did everything that he could to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. So as amazing as Gabriel's message to this elderly, childless couple was, it would not be the most amazing birth Israel or the world would ever know. We learn in our passage that Gabriel returns six months later to make an even greater announcement to this young girl that she would give birth to the Savior of the world. And this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is arguably the most celebrated holiday in all the world. It is said that it involves more people and more nations than any other. It is different from a lot of holidays. It doesn't celebrate man's accomplishment. It isn't in memory of a significant historical individual. What it does is it celebrates the divine incarnation of God Himself in the form of a baby miraculously some 2,000 years ago. Sadly, many if not most will celebrate Christmas completely ignorant of its significance of its divine origin, and of its eternal significance. Christmas has become the giving and the receiving of gifts. It's time off of work. It's time off of school. It's big, plentiful family dinners. It's gatherings. It's everything except a focus on this incarnation of the one and only. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke 
deal with the birth of Christ more completely than John or Mark. In fact, John simply acknowledges that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark doesn't deal with that at all. Mark begins with Jesus' public ministry. But all throughout the pages of Scripture, there are prophecies that address the coming of the Messiah. The very, very first one, not surprisingly, is in Genesis 3.15. After the fall of man, after God has handed down His curse upon Adam and Eve, He turns His attention to the great deceiver, our eternal spiritual enemy, our eternal enemy until we go home. In Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, capital He, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus would go to the cross, the bruising of the heel, but He would not be held by the death, by death or the cross. He would be raised again and He would bruise the head. And the literal reading is crush the head of this enemy. And so this is the very first indication immediately after the fall of man that there is going to come one who is going to restore mankind back and a proper relationship with God. The Psalms, the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, and others speak of the coming of the Messiah. So here in our text, we're going to see the culmination of all of this prophecy as it comes to the fulfillment and the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's look in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Here's what God's Word says for us today. A bit of a lengthy passage, but we're going to run through this. There's a lot here. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, And the angel departed from her. Now, in all honesty, we could spend many, many, many weeks digging out the significance of all of these references. But by the time we did that, Christmas would be long gone, and we'll kind of lose the emphasis of what we're trying to accomplish here. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture in seven basic points. Number one is the messenger. We see in verse 26, Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, the sixth month here refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. It isn't a sixth month in a calendar year. It is speaking specifically 
about the completion of the prophetic message that Gabriel gave to Elizabeth six months earlier. And this message comes from Gabriel. Gabriel is one of four chief angels mentioned in Scripture. He appears in the book of Daniel and also here in Luke. And in one of the apocryphal books that isn't in our canon of Scripture, the book of Enoch, he plays a very prominent role. So earlier, Gabriel has appeared to Elizabeth, and now he again appears to Mary. And he does so in Nazareth. Gabriel has been sent for the second time into Nazareth. Now, it's interesting, as we learn a little bit about Nazareth, it was not truly a city as our English translation indicates, it was really just a small rural village of a few hundred people, and it was estimated to be 75 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It was called Nazareth of the Gentiles. So the region, Nazareth of Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee, or Galilee, is somewhat familiar to us, but Nazareth is not. It had no major industry. It was not near any major trade routes. It had no distinctive features. It had no prominent individuals. It wasn't mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. And in fact, it's not mentioned in any of the Jewish or historical writings that are available to us today. Nazareth was off the beaten path, probably unknown by most, and it is a little bit peculiar that this chief angel Gabriel would come to this little town of Nazareth and announce the coming of the birth of the Son of God. And this would be messaged, not in Jerusalem, the center of everything in Jewish religious religion and culture and society, but in this little bump on the road, nondescript to this individual by the name of Mary. Nazareth was one of thousands of small insignificant villages in Palestine except for these two chosen individuals. So Gabriel travels to this village to the heart of the Gentile region to announce the birth of the Savior of the world. Number two in our outline, we see the recipient. Verse 27. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. So this message is for Mary. There are several key points that are in this verse that are worth mentioning here. The first one is this. Mary was a virgin. Now this seems not so important to us, but it actually is very important because that word virgin means a person who has never had sexual relations. It would never, ever, ever be used to a woman who was married. Now this is important because there are many in our world today that deny the virgin birth of Christ because that's just simply impossible. That could never happen. But when the writer here, Luke, chooses the word virgin, he is emphasizing the fact that this is a, mar- this is a woman who was not married and could not possibly be able to conceive. Now, this is not coincidentally prophesied in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel, which is translated into the Greek and into the Hebrew in the same word that we would understand to come to the word Jesus. So it would take 
a pretty curious set of circumstances to manufacture the appearance of this individual Gabriel to this young girl named Mary to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah so that the world could be tricked into thinking that the virgin birth actually took place. Well, this Mary, who is a virgin, is also, we're also told, is engaged. And the biblical word there is betrothed. So in Jewish practice, what you and I are not familiar with because we aren't Jewish and we're far, far removed from this part of Jewish culture, is that young girls around the age of 12 or 13 would be engaged to be married. The parents would arrange an engagement or a betrothal, usually an individual who was a couple of years older. And this was a legal union that could only be broken by death or divorce. If the one that you were betrothed to died, you were considered a widow or a widower. If something happened in this year-long engagement and they separated, they would be considered divorced. Very, very different from our engagements today and really very, very different from our marriages today because in our world today, you can get divorced for quote-unquote irreconcilable differences. You can have your marriage annulled and you can pretend like it never even existed. But not so in the Jewish culture. This was a binding legal arrangement. So these engagements usually lasted around a year, and it was during this period that the woman would prove her faithfulness and her purity, and the young man would prepare a home for his bride-to-be. So after the year was up, there was a seven-day wedding feast, which was the party of the village, and then, and only then, was the marriage to be consummated. So it's also important in this verse that it's identified that Mary is engaged to Joseph, a descendant of David. Joseph really is a very, very insignificant part of the narrative. He's mentioned here. He's mentioned a little bit later in Luke when they take Jesus to the temple for his dedication and when he's 12. But when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Joseph is nowhere to be found. And the widespread assumption is that sometime in Jesus' life, Joseph passed away. What we do know about Joseph is that he was just a simple carpenter. But it's also important that it's identified here, and it's also identified very specifically in Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph is of the lineage of David. Now, why is this important? Well, it was important because it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Any would-be Messiah that would appear on the scene in the nation of Israel who could not be traced back to the lineage of David would be called an imposter and their claim to Messiahship would quickly be snuffed out. So Matthew chapter 1 traces the lineage and it's through this adoption that Joseph is going to have over this baby who is going to be born to Mary and this will fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah. One of these references is in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, capital H, referring to the Messiah, will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. So these simple little words and phrases are incredibly important because they indicate several of the fulfilled prophecies that surround the birth of Jesus. Now, number three in our outline, we see the greeting. 
Gabriel has arrived. He's shown up in the house of this young girl, Mary, who is engaged to Joseph. And here's what he says in verse 28. Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now that word greeting is a very common greeting in the Jewish culture. In our day and age, it would simply be a hello. But this other phrase, favored one, the Lord is with you, is quite significant and very, very unusual. So this word favored one carries the meaning of graced. It is one who has been graced, one who has been the recipient of God's grace. Now in the Catholic faith, the term favored one has come to mean that Mary is full of grace as opposed to Mary being the recipient of God's grace. Now this came about through the translation of the Latin Vulgate where the Hebrew was translated into Latin, and then much, much later on, the Latin was translated into English. But in this Latin translation, the word favored one is retranslated full of grace. And so this term, full of grace, forms the basis for the Catholic prayer, the Hail Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, blah, blah, blah. So Pope Pius X, in the early 1900s, called Mary the dispenser of grace as opposed to the recipient of grace. Now, understanding how Catholics understand the, the transfer of power through the popes, they believe that Jesus passed the papal power to Peter, and Peter passed it down the line, and it's still intact today. Now, we don't necessarily agree with that, but here you have Pope Pius, and it was somewhere around 1904-1905 that he added this phrase, or reinterpreted the phrase, as Mary being the dispenser of grace and not the recipient of grace. So Gabriel goes on to say, God is with you. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And what this phrase means is God is enabling you. Enabling you to do what? That's the question, right? What is it that Gabriel is telling me that God is going to enable me to do? Well, what we need to recognize is that there isn't anything super special about Mary other than the fact that God has chosen her among all the 12 or 13-year-old girls who are engaged, in all of the land, He has chosen Mary to give birth to Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What is Luke 1 all about? What is this narrative all about? Well, it's about the birth of Christ. It's not about the one who gives birth to the Christ. It's not about the father who adopts the boy who is called the Christ. Scripture affirms that there is no divine enablement that has been given to Mary, nor does the Scripture say that she possesses any divine attributes. For example, a little bit later in our passage here, in Luke 1.47, Mary says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So if Mary was the dispenser of grace, and if Mary possessed divine attributes like God, then she would not be in need of a Savior. Jesus didn't identify her to have any superior position. In Luke 18:19, Jesus said, Who do you, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is His own mother 
And some of us know how virtuous we can make our mothers to be, right? The virtue of a mother can create all kinds of problems when it's the in-law, that mother, that meddlesome individual who makes my life so frustrating and so difficult, but our mothers can be elevated to a degree that isn't really accurate. And Jesus doesn't do that here. Jesus doesn't say anything in particular about his mother who gave him birth. Salvation comes throughout Scripture, as we understand it, by the grace of Christ and through Christ alone, not by Mary. We read in Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by His grace, referring to Jesus, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's no shared dispensation of grace that enables us to be saved that is attributed to Mary only to Jesus. We also learn that it is Christ who prays for us. It is not Mary. Christ is the one who is always making intercession for us. And we read in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So while Mary has a very unique role in the nation of Israel and in God's plan of redemption... There isn't any special divine attribute or role given to Mary outside of the fact that God chose her to give birth to His Son. Throughout all of the Gospels, Mary is barely addressed outside of the birth narrative and her presence when Jesus is about to be crucified. In between all of that time, there's barely a mention of Mary at all. So she is special but she does not have any divine attributes given to her. She's an ordinary woman in need of a Savior, selected by the grace of God who is going to enable her to give birth to the Son of God. Number four in our outline, we see the confusion. Now, I'll tell you this, there are people all throughout history who have been confused by this message. Well, guess what? We're not alone. Mary herself is very, very confused. Verse 29, But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. I've been greeted by a lot of people in my day, but I don't recall ever being greeted by an individual that caused me to be perplexed in such a way that I had to force myself to think about what is being said. I've never had someone come to me and say, greetings, future President of the United States. I said, what? What are you talking about? What do you know that I don't know? Greetings, future Emperor of the world. Who are you, you talking to me? What are you talking about? Never had a greeting like that. But here Mary is perplexed. And that word means to be greatly troubled. She had zero idea why Gabriel greeted her as the favored one. After all, she is a 12- or 13-year-old girl in her house doing chores, probably thinking about the wedding that was just a few months away. And here is this Gabriel individual in my house telling me this thing, and I'm saying, do what? <laughs> to be greatly troubled means to be emotionally and spiritually disturbed. If you remember back into our lengthy study in the Gospel of John, there were times when Jesus was greatly troubled. In His 
human emotion, he was greatly troubled by the cross that was before him. Not that he was nervous about it, not that he didn't want to do it. It just caused him a deep trouble in his emotion. So this is the same idea that we find here in Mary. This is obviously a very unusual individual who is greeting her in this way. And this is an even stronger word than that which is used when Gabriel shows up in the house of Elizabeth and says, guess what? You're way beyond the birth giving years and you've never had a child, but you're going to get pregnant and you're going to give birth to a baby and he's going to be known as the forerunner coming in the power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the people back to God. Now, Zacharias was troubled, deeply disturbed, Mary even more so. She's in the presence of something very, very different, something to her that is very godlike, and it has unnerved her. Mary likely knew there was nothing special about her that would cause him to call her the favored one. But what we see here is the humility that reflects the true spiritual character that Mary possesses. It's a common response to a divine appearance to be greatly troubled. Think about all of the times when God has appeared in veiled glory to individuals and they stopped dead in their tracks. One of these is in the book of Isaiah 6.5. Isaiah is in the temple and God shows up in veiled glory. The train of His robe has filled the temple. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The true humble character of Isaiah is reflected in his response to seeing the veiled glory of God. He didn't run out of the temple and say, I'm special. He didn't say, look at me. God has chosen me. He recognized his sinfulness and the presence of divine holiness. And his response was very simply, woe is me. In Jesus' earthly ministry, very, very early in the account, I believe it's in the book of Luke, Peter and the others were fishing all night long. These are professional fishermen. They fished all night long. They have not caught a single fish. Nothing. So after this typical 12-hour marathon of throwing a net and pulling back nothing, Jesus from the shore shouts out and says, Hey, throw your net out on the other side. And I would imagine if there was a real Polaroid of that moment, you would see their eyes rolled back on their head and say, who is this guy telling us how to catch a fish? They reluctantly follow the instructions that they hear. And as you know the story, they caught so much fish that they couldn't pull it into the boat. Their nets began to rip. And at that very instant, Peter knew that he was in the presence of of something divine. Here's what it says on Luke 5.8. When Simon Peter saw that, the net ripping, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see, in the presence of the divine, one and only God, those who are humble in their spiritual character, 
understand their sinfulness. They recognize the holiness of God. And the response is one of submission. So Mary hears this from Gabriel. She sees this divine-like being. And her response is very simply humble recognition that she's in the presence of something very, very special. So, Roman numeral 5 in our outline, we hear the message. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Now, why did he say that? Because she was very, very afraid. She is perplexed. She's deeply troubled. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So, greetings, favored one. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Now, Mary, like Noah, found favor in the sight of God who in His sovereignty was going to use her like Noah in His redemptive plans. All the way back in Genesis chapter 6, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you know the story. Noah would build the ark and he would preserve a remnant of faithful people who would love the Lord and who would serve Him with all their hearts. So as surprised as she was to hear Gabriel call her the favored one, he goes on and he tells her in verses 31 to 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, call, you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. She has heard how God intends to graciously enable her in His divine plans and His divine purposes. Now, she was greatly perplexed at being called the favored one. I can't even begin to imagine what her thought and responses to hearing this. She is going to give birth and it is going to be a divine miracle. Again, what a wonderful time to have had a picture of Mary's jaw hitting the floor, of this look of shock and disbelief, of hearing her knees knocking and seeing her legs shake and being convinced that she was going to hit the floor in just a moment's notice. Mary understood the implication of what she was hearing, even though it seemed quite impossible to her. We'll catch that here in just a second. But when Gabriel said this to her, she was not scratching her head and saying, what in the world are you talking about? The kid, the what? The, the who? She knew exactly what Gabriel was referencing. Now, this was a contradiction of terms, what she was hearing from Gabriel. Kind of like a gentle torturer, or a square circle, or a snowy summer day, or a working vacation. There is a contradiction of terms here. And the contradiction of terms is very simply this. How can I, an unmarried girl who has never been with a man, how am I going to give birth to a son? That's a contradiction in and of itself. On top of that, Gabriel says, he will be called the Son of the Most High and he will have the throne of his father David and his kingdom will have no end. 
you will name him Jesus, which in the Hebrew actually translates Yahweh saves. This name that she is going to give is an indication of the reality of the saving work of the boy that she is going to give birth to. He will be great. That greatness is an unqualified, absolute greatness. Now you and I can say, boy, that was a great meal. Or we can say, man, I had a great vacation. Or we went and saw a great movie. But that has a very limited and a very qualified greatness. When Gabriel uses the word great as he's describing the boy that Mary is going to give birth to, it is an unqualified Absolute greatness. You can take all, you can add together all of these synonyms, synonyms. He was splendid. He was magnificent. He was noble. He was distinguished. He was powerful. He was eminent. He was gracious. He was magnificent. You can add them all together and it would be incomplete to describe the greatness of the Son that Mary is going to give birth to. That is how great our God is. That is how great the Savior is. That is how great the work of God is. It is an unqualified, absolute greatness that we have never, ever seen before. He is called the Son of the Most High, and that means the Supreme Sovereign Ruler. How would you and I understand the Supreme Sovereign Ruler? Would we not say, well, that sounds to me like that is God. That sounds to me like that's the one true God. It sounds to me like this is the capital G God, unlike any other little G God that might ever be brought into the world's sphere of existence. It means that He is of the exact same nature and essence of God the Father. He will occupy the throne of David, which means that He will rule over God's spiritual kingdom. Jesus came not to sit on an earthly throne. Jesus came to enact God's spiritual kingdom, and it is on that throne that Jesus sits, ruling over all of God's kingdom. But not only that, it is the house of Jacob, which is a very specific reference to the Jewish people or God's people in general. So this individual is going to sit over the throne of God's kingdom, over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom is going to have no end, which means that he is going to have an eternal rule over all creation. Now Mary was raised in a Jewish household. She understood exactly the implications of what Gabriel was saying to her. And I would imagine that she was quite surprised at the message that she was about to hear. We see in Roman numeral 6 of her outline the explanation. Verse 36, 35, The angel answered and said to her, remembering, she said, How can I, an unmarried girl who's never been with a man, give birth And Gabriel explains it, verse 35, The angel answered and said to her, This is how God is going to enable you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is very simply the miraculous conception. It's not the immaculate conception. The immaculate conception speaks to the Catholic faith, the Catholic belief, 
that Mary was born without a sinful nature. This is the miraculous conception that Jesus is conceived in the womb of this virgin without the assistance of any man. It is going to happen as the Holy Spirit begins His creative force to carry out God's plan of redemption. It is the Holy Spirit that is going to cause this pregnancy to take place. So think about this. There are many in our world who say, well, how exactly is that going to happen? How's the Holy Spirit going to conceive into this virgin womb this baby who's going to be born who's going to fulfill all of these descriptions that we've looked at? Well, just as the Spirit was the creative force over the entirety of our universe, 95% of which is unexplorable, and a vast majority of it is not even known, He will be the creative force of this same God-man. We read in Genesis 1-2, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. You know, it was not difficult for the Spirit to create life and matter where there was once absolutely nothing. It's hard for us to even imagine a time when there was nothing. There was not even the material to create the things that we can see today. No molecules, no atoms, nothing, absolutely nothing. And the creative force of the Spirit creates everything from nothing. So if we believe that God can create this universe that we know through the spoken Word by the power that He possesses, would it be a big difficult thing for Him to conceive in this virgin womb a baby? Absolutely not. It's nothing. Because nothing is impossible with God, right? So the Most High here is the title for the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. The one who made and upholds the universe is the one that will create life in Mary's womb. Gabriel says that He will overshadow you. To overshadow means to surround or to influence. God's presence was often described as a cloud. It shrouded the full glory of God, but it indicated His divine presence. The cloud that would lead the nation of Israel by day. The cloud that covered Mount Sinai when God visited Moses. Luke would again use the same word when describing the transfiguration in Luke 9.34. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, James, Peter, and John, and Jesus. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They knew that this cloud was a representation of the divine presence of God. And this is the exact idea that we are given here by Gabriel, is that the presence of God is going to surround and influence Mary in such a way that this baby is going to be conceived. He will be called the Holy Child, meaning He will have divine origin. He and He alone has divine origin. He and He alone enters into this world sinless. He and He alone is without any blemish, without any spot. 
He and He alone is perfectly pure and thoroughly holy. And it is for this reason that He and He alone can be the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind. He will be called the Son of God, the God-man, having the same nature as the Father, born without the stain of sin, destined to be the perfect, sinless Lamb of God in the form of human flesh and blood to take upon Himself to pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. Gabriel has explained how the Holy Spirit is going to enable her as a recipient of God's grace to be a participant in His eternal plan of redemption. Number six, the sign. The sign that all of this is going to come to pass. We see in verse 36 and 37. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now she's a relative of Mary's, not a cousin, a relative much, much older. And most undoubtedly, Mary knows of Elizabeth's barrenness and her pregnancy is going to prove everything that Gabriel has said is going to come true because with God, nothing is impossible. The Bible is filled with examples of the supernatural work of God that the doubters, the scoffers, the critics will deny until they stand in judgment, but God does the impossible. As a young, faithful Jewish girl, she had no reason to doubt what Gabriel has said, even though on the surface it sounded like a far-fetched story, yet her response to this incredible message demonstrates her humility and her faith. Lastly, in our outline, we see the submission. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary very simply says, may it be so. There's no objection. There was no request for further clarification. There was no trying to pass this off to someone else. She didn't ask, what's Joseph going to think or say or do? How are my parents and my village going to respond to this? She didn't ask anything. Now, she may have pondered it, but she never asked Gabriel to explain any of the major obstacles that were going to be hers because of this thing that was going to take place. And if you remember, in Jesus' ministries we studied in the Gospel of John, there were many that knew that Joseph was not the biological father, and they used that in a way to try to incite Jesus into saying or doing something that would be inconsistent with all that he had said or done to that point. So the simple, humble little teenage Jewish girl is chosen by God's grace to give birth to the Savior of the world, not because of anything that she had done, not because of anything that she would do, but simply because God desired it. Now, you and I will never participate in the plan of redemption like Joseph and Mary. 
you and I may never be the recipients of some supernatural miracle that would cause the hearts and lives of many to consider their relationship with God. But here's what I would say to you. You and I are still recipients of God's grace because He has chosen us to be able to know Him for who He really is. The Holy Child, the Son of the Most High, the Sovereign Ruler, the One who has come to take away the sin of the world, to die in our place so that we could be redeemed back to the Father. You know, it's a great challenge as we think about the focus of our Christmas celebration. As we think about our walk with the Lord, as we think about what it is we focus on and prioritize in our life, is He the Holy One of God to us each and every day? Or have we made Him something a little bit less than what He truly is? Would you pray with me, please? Father, through this familiar account, this incredible account, I pray that You would draw our hearts back to the great God that You are. Father, how we thank You that You are a God of the impossible that You do what we never thought could ever come to pass. You provide in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And You have given to us in our salvation something that we could never earn, something that we certainly don't deserve. And it gives to us a true understanding of the whole meaning of Christmas. God, I pray that as John the Baptist came to turn the hearts of the people back to God, that our hearts would be turned back to You as we are reminded of what it is You've done for us in the Incarnation, in the first Advent, in the God-man coming to the earth that He created. God, speak to the depth of our heart and the depth of our need. And give to us a joy that is unshakable. We give you thanks and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing.